chapter 24. Let's begin in verse 36, and then we'll dive into what we really have is the last four verses, which are more perfect than they seem for our Christmas worship. So, Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. This is the word of the Lord. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. I want to give you the big idea here um, for what we're going for this morning. And I think you see it in the text, but here's the big idea. Kind of a long sentence. The Son of God came to complete His mission and to be exalted to reign forever. To bless His people and receive their joyful worship. The Son of God came to complete His mission to be exalted to reign forever to bless His people and receive their joyful worship. Now we're just going to kind of take that sentence, which I think is a fitting summary of this text in context. And we're just going to break that down, and that's going to be the outline for this message, okay? So the Son of God came, right? This is, we're, we're completing Luke's Gospel, but when Luke's Gospel begins, it's entirely about the Incarnation. Um, of course, you have the announcement uh, to Zechariah of John the Baptist's ministry and how he's going to be a forerunner for the Messiah. But the center of it isn't John there. The center of it is that John is there because Jesus is coming. And uh, you remember at the announcement of Jesus' birth by the angel Gabriel, he will be called the Son of the Most High. And so right at Christmas, we remember... Um, the eternal word, or sometimes you will hear people say the eternal logos, or, or the song says the word in flesh now appearing. 
And so we have this glorious miracle, the, the miracle of all miracles in the incarnation that the Son of God has come. And all of His glory and all of His heavenly glory and all of the glory He shared with the Father and all of the glory of all of His majesty is veiled in humility. And humility really is the mark of the incarnation. I don't know if you've thought about this, but when you, you've probably thought about the manger and the inn, but really the whole story is, is surrounded by humility. Elizabeth, you know, this is Jesus's, um, this would be uh, Mary's aunt, right? Uh, to, and, and, and Elizabeth is barren at the beginning of the story, and, um, and she recognizes that she has a reproach. She has reproach among the people because she's barren. And here's what she says uh, in regards to conceiving John. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And... Again, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, you know what she says? She says in verse 43 of chapter 1, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You know how humble and sweet that is? Elizabeth has this sense of humility. The, the, even just the mother of my Lord. Jesus still in Mary's womb. Why the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Or think about John and John the Baptist and his, him being, you know what the, the text says about John in verse 80 of chapter 1, the final, final verse in chapter 1, and the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. It's very humble. It's very humble. And of course, then you have the humblest of births. The humblest of births. Because you have Jesus, the one who condescends to us. Being subject to the womb. Being subject to the birth canal. And you have this incredible miracle of miracles. Greater than the resurrection as far as miracles go. The God-man is born. Well, he came. And he didn't come and he didn't come in pomp and show and parade. He didn't come as any king would would as any other king would come. He comes and he says things he, he says things like this. He says in Luke chapter four The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To what? to track down the rich and famous, to track down those who are noble, and uh, to find the strong, to build the strongest army and the strongest servants for himself, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, so poor and prisoners, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I just want to remind you as you think about that. Right? Well, first you should understand that he's speaking in spiritual terms. Right? 
This isn't, this isn't Jesus' effort at Marxism. Right? Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms. Just make sure that brush is kind of cleared away. Um, he's speaking in spiritual terms. The poor. Those who are poor and helpless and unable and recognize that they cannot make themselves right with God because they're full of sin. And so they're utterly bankrupt before God. It doesn't mean that no one who has money you know, cannot be saved. It's about being poor in spirit. Or when he says, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Those who are captive and enslaved to sin, I want you to think about the incarnation and Jesus and, and our Father's gracious heart and gracious spirit to His people. And the great compassion that He has to have to look upon those who are captives to sin, not just on accident, but by their own volition, you know, by nature and by choice, to set them free from a captivity and a prison that they absolutely cannot get out of. And recovering of sight to the blind. Have you ever just thought, once you came to Christ, how much your eyes see differently the whole world and everything around you than you saw before you came to Christ? And just how great was your blindness? And how little you understood of God and His world and of um, who He is and what He's done and what this whole life is about and the whole plan of history. And it makes absolutely zero sense whatsoever in our blindness. Right? This is why the whole world kind of chalks everything up to us all being kind of the fulfillment of ancient particles of stardust. Recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. You know, It's like, did your sin ever give you anything that was actually good? And did it give you anything that really... Has your sin ever given you any real freedom? Ever? A single time? No. What does it do? It oppresses you. It weighs you down. You're overwhelmed with the burden of its guilt. And the Son of God came to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He doesn't arrive with the glory He deserves. It's humble and He comes for the humble. And so He comes. Now, in the context in Luke chapter um, 24, Jesus has emphasized, and I'll just say this quickly, to complete His mission, to suffer and die. He's... He's, he's at this point, right? And in verse 44, he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, everything written about me, not one bit that was written about me, is left, is left undone or accomplished just as was said. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So He came not just to, uh, for us just to wonder at the humility of the Incarnation, but to look up upon His completed work 
in fulfillment of the law of God and fulfillment of every tent that God had established for the Messiah, He fulfills it all. Suffering, dying, and raising. And so Jesus is, remember, He's crystallizing in the disciples' heart and lives based on their Old Testament that He is exactly who the Old Testament said He would be. He opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden things start to make sense. The incarnation is just the beginning of the story because Jesus came to suffer and to die. Now, when we step into Jesus' ascension, what, has, uh, what we call Jesus' exaltation is bound up with two things, His resurrection and His ascension. He, you know, suffers and dies and then is exalted. He's raised from the dead, triumphant and ascended. Now, what is the uh, ascension? Because Jesus, the Son of God, came to complete His mission, but He came also to be exalted as King forever. And I want to spend more time here. Because we spend a lot less time on Jesus' exaltation, and particularly His ascension as the completion of His earthly work than anything else. And I wonder when you think about the ascension, when you think about the details that happen in this text right here, or you know, you look in one of the, uh, you look over in Luke's account in Acts, and there's this reality where Jesus is there, and then kind of levitates up into the clouds and is gone. And I wonder if we're ashamed about that. And that's one of the reasons that we don't really focus on the nature of what's happening in the ascension, possibly. You know, that this kind of thing that seems a little weird to us or weird to moderns. Or I mean, have you ever just thought about the weirdness of the ascension where the disciples are there and all of a sudden Jesus just kind of, you know, and it's not a magic trick. You know, there's no strings. Jesus is ascending to heaven. That's what the text says. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now, Luke's account, because you realize Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and his account in Acts records some additional details, but that's not his point here. But think about it. God the Son leaves the presence of his Father in veiled glory, which we... Uh, takes on human form, and this is what we meditate on at Christmas. And then, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, who has taken on human form, returns to His Father. When He left His Father, He left as God the Son, but Spirit only. is born of a virgin... A birth overshadowed by the Holy Spirit so that you have a sinless Savior. Not in the line of sin passed down through the seed of men, right? You have a sinless Savior. Takes on human form. And then in the ascension, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity in human form, returns to the right hand of His Father. And the Trinity is forever, from the Incarnation forward, Different. The Trinity has, in the second person, human form.
I just find that it's kind of mind-staggering. That in the Trinity is a change, not in any nature or essence, but that the God-man, Christ our Lord, took on human form forever. What is the ascension really about? When we look at this passage, what's really about? Well, in, in one sense, this is just signals the end of Jesus' earthly work. In his first advent, it is complete here. So there's kind of this, the simple part of it is, he, he's, the work is done. He's returned to the Father. Okay, um, But there's more going on in the ascension than just that. You have to understand the ascension in Jesus' exaltation um, in his resurrection and his ascension to, it's, it's like an enthronement ceremony. It is him going to his place beside the Father to reign as King of Kings. This is his exaltation to return to his Father to take his seat on the throne of David and to rule just as he was prophesied to rule. I want you to think about the ascension in fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, right? Remember in Luke's account, Luke's very, in, or in Luke's account in Acts, he's very, it's, there's that detail about him kind of disappearing into the clouds. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, And He came to the Ancient of Days. So we're talking about Jesus and the Father. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. That's the ascension. It's what's happening in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Jesus is taking His seat. Remember the Great Commission. You have to make sense of all of Scripture. When Jesus is raised, all authority is given to Him in heaven and on the earth. That's the Great Commission. Post-resurrection. Authority is handed to Him. What? To make disciples of all nations a dominion to reign over as king with authority. And the ascension is him taking his seat on the throne. And here, I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is, we have the Davidic covenant. And I just, want you to see, I just want you to see the unfolding plan of God here. And I hope and pray that this exalts Christ. Well, let's just pick it up in the middle of the Davidic covenant. And here is what, through the prophet Nathan, in the context, God says to David, David wants to build God a house made of cedar, you know? David's kind of looking out and like, I'm in a palace and uh, the Lord God dwells in a tent and he thinks, we need to build him a house. And um, 
God kind of enters, enters that situation. And let's just pick it up in verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel... And I will give you the rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever. Now, what is happening here in the Davidic covenant? Who is being talked about in this text? Who is the son of David here? Is it Jesus? Is it Solomon? Yes. Yes. Here's the beautiful thing about this. Right? Right, we know that Jesus isn't going to be disciplined for His sins. So we know that in, in the immediate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is going to come Solomon from David. And Solomon's going to reign in, glory, in a glorious kingdom when we know Solomon is not without sin and is going to need much chastisement for his sins. But, but Solomon is a son, king of both David and God the Father. Because he comes from David, he is David's offspring. But what does God say? God says in verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so he's talking about Solomon. But Solomon also dies. And Solomon also needs discipline in his sins. So how is he talking about Jesus? Well, you have to understand that Jesus is a son of David according to the flesh. And God is His Father And he is not just David's son. He is God's. He's not just like Solomon in the sense that he is a son of God. He is the true son of God. And so Solomon is a type and picture uh, and shadow of Christ. God the Son, the Son of the Most High, who would come in the line of David on down the line and be the son of his father and who would reign on David's throne forever. And then if you turn to Luke chapter 2, or chapter 1, sorry. What is said about Jesus when He, in the announcement to Mary, Luke chapter 1, and verse 30. What does the angel say to her? 
Do not be afraid, Mary, verse 30. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will, con- you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so Solomon is a son king type of Jesus, who was a son of David and a son of God the Father. But Jesus, the one greater than Solomon, is here. And the one who will build and establish and be given a kingdom and dominion forever. And so when you look now at the ascension, what is happening when you take Daniel into account also is that this is the moment where Christ takes His seat. And the Son King reigns. And His kingdom is established forever. And has anything come close to thwarting it in history? And will anything come close to thwarting it in the progress of history? Christ our King. Now, with that backdrop, what does Jesus do in this passage? He's a son, king, and a priest forever. And so what does he do? He lifts up his hands and he blesses them. You just can never forget the gracious heart of Jesus to you. You cannot live a faithful Christian life if you don't continually see Jesus' gracious heart to His people to bless them. Continually. If you don't see in His gracious heart a heart to bless His people and to overwhelm them with His goodnesses continually, you're not living like a Christian. You're not seeing Jesus the way Jesus is. And none of that takes away any of his hard edges. And none of it diminishes the law of God. You don't have to lose one to have the other. All things are summed up in him. And so he comes, the ascended king, to bless his people. He said, lifting up his hands, and he blessed them. And while he was in the act of blessing, he ascends to his Father in heaven and is gone. You realize if you are a Christian, if you are not a Christian, this does not apply to you. But if you are a Christian, you realize Jesus has come to bless you. to give you and fill your heart and life with an overflowing cup of good 
things. Every spiritual need that you could have under the sun in all of your life met not meagerly as if God was the miser of heaven, but met with the abundance because God has not spared His own Son, but gave Him up for you. You are the apple of God your Father's eye. You are the object of His gracious heart. You receive thousands upon thousands of His kindnesses. Like a river from His throne that never ceases to flow. And as priest forever, He is interceding for you as He ascends, as he ascends while giving the blessing. It's metaphorical reality of Jesus interceding for you forever, of praying for you. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed, indeed is interceding for us. Just like you would expect to be said of a Savior who lifts His hands and while He's blessing His disciples, is ascended. We have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every time I read that verse, I just think, I just want to know more about what that means. And of course, in Ephesians 1, much of it goes on to be explained. Our adoption, our election, our adoption. The guarantee of the Spirit of our inheritance poured out to His people. It's hard to actually sit here and list all of the blessing of Jesus upon your life, right? I mean, what more can I say? You are sons forever. You have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance. You have been made a part of His precious bride. He has reserving a place for you. He ascends to the Father and is preparing it as He told the disciples He would do. You have the hope of resurrection and life in a redeemed and renewed creation. Not floating around in clouds like Cupid, but earthy like this, but redeemed and without sin. Living forever in His presence. And you've been set free from the slavery of the enemy to serve and worship Him I mean, what blessing, I mean, what additional blessing could he give? You know? And so why are you covetous at Christmas? Why are you covetous at Christmas? And why are you greedy at Christmas? When you have received every blessing in the heavenly places, what more could he give? What is it going to take to make you content? If you want to be miserable at Christmas, be covetous and greedy. If you want this week to go terrible with all of your covetous expectations and all of your covetous desires to get out of control and all the things you think should go just the way you think they should go, if you want to be miserable, do that. Be covetous 
and greedy. And don't look on the fact that Christ has given you every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. His very ascension is to bless His people. So Jesus came to complete His mission, to be exalted as King forever, to bless His people and receive their joyful worship. Now, it's really interesting when you see here in verse 52, the disciples, and they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That is different than the response of the disciples to Jesus throughout the entire Gospel of Luke. Right? Even in the, in the context that we read today. Right? Their hearts are troubled. They're unbelieving. They're doubting. They're fearful. And this is the state, in, 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 in however many years we've been in the study of Luke, this is the state of the disciples. In confusion, in fear, in disbelief, and doubt, as they followed Jesus all around the ancient Near East. And so here, this, like, the very, very end of Luke's Gospel, there's a complete transition in the disciples' understanding of Jesus. Because worshiping Him with great joy and continually blessing God, has this is the first time you get that kind of response from all of them. You know, it took all of the life and ministry of Jesus very personally to them in His love and care and revelation. But it took all to the very end of the ministry of Jesus for it to all click with the disciples. And here it all makes sense. And here they all finally get it. All of the plan of God throughout history has come to pass just as the Scripture said. The Messiah has come and the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth born in Bethlehem just as foretold. And He has completed His work to suffer and die and raise and ascend to take the seat of the throne of His Father David. And they now get it all. And so they worship with great joy. I mean, what is left to do when you think about the work of Christ? What is left to do but just bless the one with joyful worship who has done everything for you? What is left except to bless the one who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, which is what the text does, right? Jesus, lifting His hands, blessed them. And while He blessed them, in verse 3, now they're blessing God in the temple. What's left to do but bless the one with joyful, glad worship who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and who is holding out to you the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness in the Lord Jesus. One final word to close our study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke really is a literary genius. And 
his gospel begins in the temple with Zechariah and Zechariah's vision that his barren wife Elizabeth would bear a son and they would call his name John. It ends in the temple with the disciples worshiping freely their great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, their Lord, whom he has sent. Luke's gospel starts with the joy of the announcement of the birth of John and Jesus' birth, and it also ends with the great joy of the disciples. All the fear and confusion is now gone concerning Jesus. Luke's gospel starts with many blessings. In chapter 2, Simeon blesses God and blesses Joseph and Mary. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. You will die, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He will divide the whole world, right? But there's a blessing pronounced. Elizabeth, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And so this language that starts the Gospel of Luke concludes here with Jesus blessing the disciples and the disciples' response being full of blessing. Why is Luke's ending right where he started? I just want to suggest to you because the work of Jesus is done. He's bringing full circle everything that he set out to do to make plain to most excellent Theophilus, all the way back in the very beginning of chapter 1, to make plain who Jesus is and why he came. And now he ties it off and says, this has now gone uh, full circle unto completion and the work of Christ is finished. Which means there's really good news for any of you who are here today that since the work of Jesus is completed, you can repent and be forgiven of all of your sins. You can't just watch Christmas go by. You can't just exchange gifts and be around family. You must respond to Jesus who is King reigning over this world. And you must submit your life to Him with faith and see that He is God the Son who came to die and suffer under the penalty and guilt of your sin in your place. And you submit to Him and trust that you deserve to die the death that He died and He graciously did it for you. And He was raised from the dead proving that the death penalty for sin was paid in full and there was no penalty left. And so the good news is that among all the nations, the peoples of the earth can repent and have their sins remissed. Do you know Christ like that? It would be an amazing thing if this Christmas you repented of your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and you experienced all the joy. It all would make sense now. Just like the disciples. Jesus is who He says He is. And I am completely helpless before God without Him. But with Him I have everything. And you would come to realize that for the first time this Christmas. And we would just praise God for that. You would just praise God for that. But you must repent and believe this good news. If you would ever be saved, and if Christmas would ever mean anything really meaningful, 
Stand with me for prayer, would you? Father, I don't know what to do, but to just come together in song and bless Your name and exalt Your Son. We thank You for kindness upon kindness and all of Your abundance to us that You have not spared anything, even Your own Son, in this great redemption that is ours. And we praise our great Redeemer who reigns now and forever on His throne until it is time for Him to leave and come again to conquer and to judge. We long for that day and we look for it. We await Your rescue from the wicked and we pray for any here still left in that estate that they would repent and see Your merciful and gracious heart to save those who are lost. We pray for this, for Your Spirit to work in hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.